Well, I must say, I made my way out into the lobby for the first time and didn't realize what a feast it was back there. (laughs) Goodness, uh, I think I would have changed my whole strategy. My my family is here with me, and um, there was something for everyone. My my son, oddly enough, loves Fig Newtons, and I think this is the only church or conference I've ever been to where there were Fig Newtons, and he just about lost it. <laughs> Dad, Dad, you are not going to believe this. So thank you for for accommodating my family. Well, what a treat this has been to talk to you about the Trinity. What could be more important, right? What could be more important to being a Christian? Do you realize this sets us apart? This is essential to what it means to be a Christian, and it makes us unique in so many ways, this God that we worship. And so I'm looking forward to this last, uh, this last message with you. And please come tomorrow. Um, for the uh, the panel question answer, uh, you will ask hard questions, and I will just turn and look to uh, Dr. Fesco for the answer. <laughs> uh, last night, I introduced you to that word simplicity, and we looked at the Nicene Creed and what it meant, what it means for God to be one. And then this morning. <clears throat> we turned and looked at one example of how we distinguish between the persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. I suppose if we had the rest of the week and we were to camp out in the parking lot, uh, we could look at uh, that more thoroughly and and spend a whole whole lecture on the Spirit. But in this final uh, message, I want to turn our attention to Uh, one of the most spectacular and incredible facets of the Christian story of salvation and draw your attention to how our triune God works inseparably and why that is so important for your communion and fellowship with this God. I don't know about you, maybe I'm the only one, but sanctification can be very hard. Am I right? The fight against sin can be relentless. When you feel its weight, where, where do you turn to? Maybe you've never thought about this. Where do you turn to exactly? Did you know that in your quest for holiness, did you know that you're not alone? Or maybe you know that in your head, but you don't actually live that way. The entire Trinity is with you. Empowering you. When you think about sanctification, well, your mind may be drawn to the Holy Spirit, and rightly so. But whenever we witness the Spirit in Scripture whether he's descending on the the apostles at Pentecost or indwelling the assembly of believers throughout the book of Acts, it's not as if the Holy Spirit has gone solo, off on his own. 
Nor is it the case that the Spirit is merely cooperating with the Father and the Son. Whatever the Spirit does, whatever the Spirit accomplishes, the triune God does and accomplishes. Think about some of Paul's letters, for example. 1 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians. To the Corinthians and Thessalonians, Paul can say, Christ himself is our sanctification. And then he can pray that the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, completely. What about Peter? In 1 Peter 1, Peter rejoices that God's elect are secure in the sanctification of the Spirit. We've been talking about so many of those Gregories from church history. But did you know, we've talked about Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus. Did you know there was a third individual that joined that pack? This three, uh, these three theologians that were so crucial to defending the church and helping it survive the threat against heresy, there was a third individual. His name wasn't Gregory, which has got to be one of the most significant disappointments of church history. His name actually is Basil, Basil of Caesarea. And I'm going to be talking about Basil a lot. We've given the Gregories their time. Let's let Basil say a thing or two in our final time together. I want you to listen to what he says here very much in the spirit of, say, the Apostle Paul or Peter. In all things, the Holy Spirit is inseparable and wholly incapable of being parted from the Father and the Son. In every operation, the Spirit is closely conjoined with and inseparable from the Father and the Son conjoined with, inseparable from. This is the language that we're after, isn't it? Because phrases like these protect the simplicity, the unity of our triune God, guarding us from, remember those ditches on the side of the road? Subordination, tritheism, another example. They guard us from swerving and falling into one of those ditches. They ensure that our triune God acts as one because He is one, one in nature. So, whenever we refer to the triune God's action toward the world, we must recognize that it is an indivisible and singular action as indivisible as the one single essence that these persons have and share in common. And whenever we refer to the triune God's essence, we recognize that it is an indivisible essence, as indivisible as the one singular action the three persons perform in common. It's because our triune God 
is one, that he acts as one. Better said yet, his action is one. There's a a phrase for this. The external works of the Trinity are undivided. Undivided. Now, allow me to clarify for a minute here. The unity between Father, Son, and Spirit is not merely a cooperation, a cooperation between three separate persons in society. That's often how we work, right? I imagine there were many who cooperated with each other to make sure that this conference could happen. They got along. They got on the same page. They remained separate, of course, but they cooperated to make sure the plan happened in the end. But that is not sufficient when we are talking about God. Father, Son, and Spirit do not merely cooperate as three separate persons, nor is this unity accomplished by a division of labor, as if there is one work to accomplish, and that one work is divvied up among the three persons. Again, that may be how we work, right? But remember, we are not one in the way that Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Both of these options are insufficient. They're even riddled with certain his, uh, heretical tendencies. When we say God acts as one, we actually assume he is one. Since his very nature and essence is one, he acts as one. Not merely cooperating, but performing a single act that accords with the triune God's single will. I can't emphasize this enough. So if you've tuned out, tune back in just for a second here. This statement gets at the heart of what we're after. One and the same action, one and the same divine nature. In theology, this unity and act is called, remember that phrase? Inseparable operations. I've mentioned it once or twice. Inseparable operations. Write that down. Highlight it. Put it in your notes. The three persons are without separation, without division in their external operations towards this world. Whether they be, what, what, what might some of those be? Well, Dr. Fesco even mentioned some of them in his talks. Creation, providence, or redemption itself. But that raises another question, doesn't it? If the Trinity is one in operation, why then does Scripture focus on, say, a particular uh, person of the Trinity at any particular time? Well, again, we theologians love words. There's another word that you just have to know. And the word is this, appropriation, appropriation. It means, the word literally means to draw toward or to put near to that which is proper. The word appropriation explains how Scripture can draw near our attention to a person of the Trinity whenever an act of the triune God is in our, is in our view. 
I love what one theologian said. Appropriation attributes an action or an effect to a divine person in a special way, but without excluding the others. That qualification, without excluding the others, is so key. It's so important, lest we divide up the Trinity and compromise its singularity, its unity, its simplicity. Lest the Trinity no longer be simply Trinity. The purpose of that idea, appropriation, well, it really mimics Scripture in all kinds of ways which shines the spotlight on a person in a special way, though never to the exclusion of the other two. While every act of God in creation, in providence, in redemption, is the single act of the triune God, nevertheless, certain acts may terminate on certain persons or be appropriated by a person of the Trinity in a special manner. While it's always the one undivided God acting according to His one undivided will, we give attention to a person of the Godhead, but always, always, always in a way that accords with each person's eternal relation of origin. Do you see how we're coming full circle? The Father is unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten. And the Spirit is is eternally spirated. Herman Bavink, and if you've never read him, well, I'm sure he's in the bookstore in the back somewhere. If not, we'll have to find out why. (laughs) He said this, all things proceed from the Father, are accomplished by the Son, and are completed in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? What we are saying is anything but novel. Many of the church fathers and many of the Protestant reformers and those who came after them love to exemplify this type of biblical nuance. So think about this with me for a minute. As we tie together everything we said about what distinguishes those persons, eternity, God in himself apart from creation, and everything that we see happening in creation. Let's start with the Father. The Father, many of them said, well, the Father, He is the beginning of activity, the fountain and wellspring of all things. Every work has its beginning from the Father. Why is that so fitting? So fitting because, remember, remember, this is the Father who is unbegotten, in eternity. What about the Son? Well, they said the, the Father's, the Son is the Father's wisdom. Remember, remember these biblical concepts? The Father's wisdom, counsel, the ordered disposition of all things. Every work is advancing through the Son. How fitting. Because this is the same Son who is begotten from the Father, from eternity. And of course, we don't want to leave out the Holy Spirit, of course. That would be disastrous. The Father and the Son's power and efficacy. Every work is completed in the Holy Spirit. And how fitting. Because this is the same Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son 
in eternity. Now let's consider just briefly two examples. First, creation, and second, salvation. Creation, on the one hand, is the one act of our triune God. It's not as if only the Father creates while the Son and Spirit are left to the sidelines. I suppose like a, like a football game in which they're left standing there while the Father does all the work. Father, Son, and Spirit together will to create the cosmos. And they do so as the one undivided God of the cosmos. And yet, consistent with their eternal relations of origin, we can also distinguish between the three persons as we observe creation's cause. So let's, let's invite Basil back up for a minute and allow him to speak to us. Listen to what he says. It is the Father who is the original cause, the Son who is the creative cause, and the Spirit who is the perfecting cause. Creation is brought into existence by the will of the Father, by the operation of the Son, and is perfected by the presence of the Spirit. And if you've ever read Genesis or the Psalms or surely the New Testament, you begin to notice this, don't you? From beginning to end. Consider a second example. Salvation. When I was a young Christian... God used a passage like Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 1. God used this passage in a tremendous way to open my eyes to His sovereignty in salvation. To introduce me to the doctrines of grace. So I know that maybe maybe this is your story. <clears throat> Some of you come to the doctrines of grace a bit like Jacob uh, started wrestling with God. It's a struggle and you won't let go till he blesses you. That wasn't my case, my experience. As I read Ephesians 1 over and over and over again, not really thinking yet in terms of the doctrines of grace, when I was introduced to the doctrines of grace, I thought, that sounds like Paul. Ephesians 1. But I kept reading Ephesians 1. And I started to notice something that I had not picked up on before. Yes, the sovereignty of God's grace is there, vivid in our salvation. But have you ever noticed that the sovereignty of God's grace in our salvation is Trinitarian from start to finish? Look at verses 3 through 4. Paul says, It is God the Father who has blessed us in Christ and chose us in Him before the world was created. We are elected by the Father and chosen in His Son. Paul's not finished, though. What does he say next? He grounds our adoption 
in our eternal predestination. Look at verses 5 through 7. But he doesn't do this apart from the Trinity. The Father has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Yet not only does God the Father elect us in his Son from all eternity, but he also sends his Son to die for us in redemptive history. Isn't this why Paul can say, look at verse 7, it's in him, Christ, that we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What about the Holy Spirit? Well, look further. Look at verses 13 through 14. What the Father planned and the Son accomplished, the Spirit applies. Think of the moment when you first heard about Christ. Maybe some of you actually remember that as if it were yesterday. What happened? Was it not the Holy Spirit who sealed you? In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, isn't, isn't that what we're doing here? Isn't that why you, you come on Sunday mornings to hear this word of truth? What, what took place when you were outside of Christ, when you were in Adam rather than in Christ? What happened when you heard that word of truth? What is, what does Paul say next? When you heard this gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Friends, the Spirit is your assurance. The down payment until we secure in full the inheritance this great God has predestined for us from before the foundation of the world. Christian, do you understand how safe you are in the arms of the Trinitarian God? What do we conclude from this majestic chapter in Ephesians? Well, let's come back to that word appropriation. How does it work? The Father is the author of our salvation. The Son, its Redeemer. And the Spirit, its Sanctifier. The Father is the source of our salvation. The Son, the Redeemer of our salvation. And what does Jesus say in John's Gospel? The Spirit, the Comforter of our salvation. And yet, each and every component... Every component of our salvation is the single act and achievement of this Trinity. If this idea of divine appropriations gives us a license to speak of the persons in this way, in a way that corresponds to, to who they are in eternity apart from us, those eternal relations of origin, 
Is it fitting to think? Do we even dare to think that we as adopted children of God can have communion and fellowship with these persons? Not only is the answer yes, but a Puritan like John Owen believes that the Christian who does not have communion with all three persons of the Trinity, is that you? Is deeply missing out. Are you missing out? When you reflect on how you pray or how you contemplate this God or how you worship this God, are you Trinitarian? Do you know this Trinitarian God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Communion with each person, says John Owen, is what makes the Christian life so Christian. I hear people talk a lot about what the Christian life is about. And I never hear this. Do you? When was the last time you heard someone talk about their communion with this God in these Trinitarian terms? And are you missing out on this communion? There's a lot of parents in this room. I've met many of you already. Imagine for a minute if you told your children on Christmas morning, right? You know what Christmas morning's about. We love Jesus, don't we? But let's be honest, our kids also love presents. And those are some of the good gifts that God has given to us parents and we can bless our children that way. But Imagine, imagine, you know the look on your your kid's face. They come running down the stairs Christmas morning, just bubbling over, ready to pop, right? Looking at those presents under the tree, wrapped up, bows on top. Mom, Dad, can we open them? Please, please. And that's if they're being polite. <laughs> maybe, maybe some of you have, have come into the living room and they're already opening them. But the eagerness, the expectation, the anticipation, right? It's filling them. It's brimming over. They cannot wait. But imagine if you said to them, don't those presents look great? You'd love to open them, wouldn't you? Not today. Never. You can look at them. You can admire them, but you cannot open one of them. 
Can you imagine the look on their faces? The disappointment. Friends, when, when you approach God as if He is not Trinity, and I'm not just pointing the finger, I do this as well. When we act as if we're, we're going to have fellowship and communion with this God in a way that is not Trinitarian, we're like, we're like those kids who come running down the stairs on Christmas morning and we miss out on all of the gifts in front of us that we are meant to enjoy, that are meant to define us. On the one hand, we have the privilege of communion with the whole Trinity. Anytime we enjoy communion at all. Do you remember that sentence? I've shared this with you, I think, either last night or this morning. By what act soever we hold communion with any person, there is an influence from every person to the putting forth of that act. Remember that phrase from John Owen? Indivisible in essence, inseparable in operation. To enjoy fellowship with one person is to then come under the influence of all three. I don't think John Owen would have disagreed when Gregory of Nazianzus, I just have to say this again, remember this? No sooner do I conceive of the one then I am illumined by the splendor of the three. And no sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. Do you feel that tension? I get a little worried sometimes when Christians don't feel that tension anymore. Makes me worry what perhaps something's been compromised. It's okay to feel that tension. You're meant to live in it like Gregory describes here. No sooner do I conceive of the one I'm illumined by the splendor of the three. And as soon as I distinguish them, I'm carried back to the one. And yet at the same time, what a mystery this is. John Owen says, you can know each person in a distinct way that corresponds to who they are. Those eternal relations of origin. As the unbegotten father from whom the son is begotten and the spirit is spirated. The Father is the source of the Godhead, the principle, to use that old-fashioned language. So too, then, is He the source of our communion. From Him flows an everlasting fountain of love. Sweet nectar from the flower. I can tell you from my own experience, and I do not think I'm alone on this, that the way we often think of the Father is not like this. You may not want to say this to anyone because it reveals something in our heart, doesn't it? But how do we usually view the Father if we're honest? Never satisfied with us. Always displeased with us. 
always ticked off and angry. And we're thinking this way as, as, as Christians, as his children. Maybe our view of God, the Father, has been informed more by the fallibility of human fathers and all the mistakes we make. Do you... <laughs> He is a fountain of love. Love. Listen to John Owen. What distinguishes our communion with the Father? Is it not his free, undeserved, and eternal love? Out of his everlasting love for us, He sent his only begotten son for us. And you, you've been united to this son. You are the recipients then of all of the father's benevolence towards you in Christ Jesus. Because he has redeemed his people through his son and by his spirit. That's you. Do you think of the Father that way? He loves you. He sent his son to bleed for you. If the Father's love is the nectar and the flower, our communion with the Son is by grace, it's the fruit of this flower. We've been bought with his blood, so we enjoy his righteousness. Once we have tasted this fruit, the fruit of his righteousness, isn't this what Dr. Fesco is sharing? The imputed righteousness of Christ is yours. Well, John Owen says, when you, when you discover this, your soul melteth in longing after him. I was telling one of you this during the break. I find this so true in my life. Doesn't this change your perspective on sin? I mean, one moment, you sin is so desirable. You want it. You have to have it. You'll do anything for it. You, you don't care how irrational it is. It doesn't matter. That's how life works in the darkness. But what happens when you open those doors to the light and you see your sin against the brilliance of the sun? You think, what was, what was I doing? How that when, when this, what it's not even comparable and all of those Desires that seemed so impossible to get around suddenly seem silly and quite childish. Sin loses its appeal. Why? Because all we want is Christ. Please just give me 
Jesus. Listen to John Owen again. Upon discovery of the excellency and sweetness of Christ in the banqueting house, the soul is instantly overpowered. It cries out to be made partaker of the fullness of it. Friends, Christ, he's not only the well from which you drink that everlasting water and you receive that everlasting delight, but he is the bedrock. You you need to hear this. He is the bedrock for you. The bedrock, your eternal fortress. We possess great spiritual safety through our communion with the Son. The daily cultivation of communion with Christ, it is impossible though, apart from the consolation of the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, the Spirit is the one who can then bring you into communion with the Father and the Son. The love that the Father shows to you through the grace of His Son is communicated by the Spirit of His Son. The Spirit, how does He do this? Scripture says the Spirit pledges the Father's love to us by comforting us. If you're anything like me, anxiety, anxiousness, it is such a temptation, isn't it? Worry. How many of you worry? You worry about everything. I worry about everything. Everything from big things to little things, right? Jesus says, why are you living as if you do not have the Holy Spirit? I have given the Holy Spirit to you. He is your comfort. He consoles you with all of the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. And every single one of them are yours. This is why he calls him the comforter, the helper in Scripture. He is our consolation. He is our ever present comfort. Even, are some of you suffering? Even in your worst suffering, the Spirit is there. The Spirit is there to distribute the Father's love to you in Christ Jesus. I think it's fitting at the end of these talks on the Trinity to finish with Athanasius. I want you to listen to what Athanasius says here. In the midst of spending so much time thinking about the Trinity, defending the Trinity, knowing its full implications for salvation, for worship in the church, listen to what he says. When we participate in the Spirit, we have the grace of the Word, and in the Word, the love of the Father. When we participate in the Spirit, we have the grace of the Word, and in the Word, the love of the Father.
Athanasius, of course, is only echoing the benediction that Paul gives to the Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if our communion with the Father is by His love, if our communion with the Son is by His grace, if our communion with the Spirit is by His consolation and comfort, how then shall we respond? How then shall you live with joy and gladness in our hearts? We cry out, Abba, Father, knowing with full assurance from the Spirit that our Father will embrace us as His very own children, redeemed by the blood of His only begotten Son. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, how encouraging it has been to contemplate who You are Lord, may we never buy into that worn-out lie that contemplating the deep things of God is somehow not important. As if this doesn't affect what it means to know You, what it means to understand the great work of salvation You've accomplished, what it means to have communion and fellowship with you. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. We so often pray, we worship, we think with our minds in ways that are far less than Trinitarian. But Lord, we ask, no, we beg you, Lord, give us just a little bit. Give us some understanding so that whether we are thinking about you, whether we are praying to you, whether we are worshiping you in all things, we are faithful to who you are, the one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And help us, Lord, as we leave this place, may that change us Lord, may you sanctify us until that day when we are glorified and see you and enjoy communion with you like never before. In Christ's name, amen.